welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Today, I'll be reading from Isaiah 58, verses 6 through 12. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, and the pointing finger, and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, Restorer of streets with dwellings. This is the word of the Lord. But I have to be honest with you, I come to this message this morning myself actually feeling someone who is in need of comfort because I'm feeling disturbed within me. And also realizing that there's a comfort in me that needs to be disturbed. I'm talking about the things that I have witnessed, as many of you have uh, on the TV screens, on social media, and uh, seemingly everywhere over the last uh, few days, uh, a little over a week. Um, through the, uh, the brutal murder of George Floyd and, and the event that that was, and then the response and the reaction to that, and everything that sort of came from that. And, and, I, and I would submit to you that I think what I am feeling and what many, many people are feeling is not only the grief and the, really the trauma associated with uh, seeing an event like that and the, the grievous nature of the event itself, but I think one of the reasons it has reverberated almost around the world is because in one moment, in a few minutes, the picture actually of injustice and oppression and abuse of power, not only in, this, in that situation, but resonated with everybody around the world who has also found themselves in a situation like that. Recognizing there are thousands, even millions of people who actually nobody has, has seen their pain. No one has seen the abuses of power that has happened to them. No one has seen the injustice. There is no voice for them. There is no social media to support them. There is no one coming out to protest them that what he experienced was not just a tragedy and an event that happened to him and the people around him and the response to that in that city, in that nation, but it has actually resonated around the world with everyone who has experienced injustice, racism, abuse of power. 
And I'll be honest with you, as, as I have kind of just been looking inside of me and even the, the responses coming up, I've, I've sort of been all over the place. When I first, uh, when, when this first happened and Jen and I were talking about it, um, I was angry and she was crying. You know, our response is both like sadness, anger, and I've, I've had both. As I've watched this and also watched the responses that have come from it and hearing the stories of other people who are chiming in, um, recognizing that this is part of their story too. I have felt, if I'm honest, waves of hopelessness and despair, seeing the scale of this, thinking maybe perhaps that things are getting better and realizing, no, they're not. And in fact, coming uh, after months of lockdown in the pandemic and a crisis, a worldwide crisis, the grief level has, has reached an even new, uh, new fever pitch. And so there's a, there's a hopelessness in me, even as I listen to people and their suggestions and responses, it feels like, yeah, what is ever going to change? Even people writing articles saying there will be protests just like there were before, just like there were before, but is every, anything ever going to change? I have felt at times even sort of a, a cynicism, with some of the responses or even just in me, just sort of like a, a, um, a wanting to turn away. Ultimately, I think what I have felt the most is um, paralysis. Like, what, what do I even do? What can I do? Uh, like almost like watching this, listening to this is sort of an exercise in futility, even in my own heart and mind. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe even as I thought about do I even preach about this today? Um, do we even talk about this today? On one level, my, my, in my heart, I'm like, yes, for sure, because as you've heard and maybe you've seen, silence is violence. And there's truth to that, that those who see things or acknowledge and refuse to speak up about them actually tacitly play a part in perpetuating them. And so there is that truth. And yet, at the same time, some people who participated in sort of Blackout Tuesday on social media, I saw some comments for those because it was, a, it was an act of silence. Some said, yeah, that's very appropriate for you to do such and such an organization because you've been silent about this issue all the way along. And so there's even a cynicism about responses to it as people. And so even I was thinking, well, is this just going to be like a bandwagon sermon? I think, well, I probably should say something about it because everybody's saying something about it. On one level, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I, I don't know, even know what to say. Am I just going to invite people into the mess that I feel inside of me, of waves of anger and despair and hopelessness and paralysis, and just kind of commiserate because I don't know what to do? I don't know where you're at. I don't know what your experience is. Maybe you have felt the waves and the spectrum of emotions that I've described. Or maybe you're someone who's just held this at arm's length, and you're not wanting to be affected by it. Maybe it's become sort of, for you, uh, intellectual social commentary or commentary on politics, and that's what this is for you. But as I came to this point this week and realizing, no, I need to speak about it, it was for two reasons, and one really the most important one. While, while we as the church, and maybe many people around the world, might be accused of silence or being late to the party or being on the bandwagon or something like that, God is not. 
God is not silent. He is not late to the party. He is not uninterested or even tacitly condoning what we have seen. And I'll have to be honest with you. When religious leaders or sometimes politicians are holding Bibles in their hands, somehow it reinforces the thing that many of my friends who don't want anything to do with the church or anything to do with it anymore think that somehow God is a white supremacist, that God is somehow tacitly condoning all that's going on. And in my heart, I'm saying, no, God is not silent. He has never been silent on these issues. He is not late to the party. He had arrived at this thousands of years before we did, and he has something to say about it. And so we as the church have to go to him and say, God, what do you have to, your words are the words we need. Actually, the second reason that I wanted to talk about it is our plan was actually to start a series this, this week, which we are starting, on generosity. Um, and, and I was planning four weeks from now on preaching about injustice, and I just thought, no, we're going to get into it today. This is where we begin. Um, now, even when I say the words generosity, you might think, well, oh, I guess that has to do with giving or giving money, and maybe this is about, oh, we should do our part to give to, to social justice reform or things like that. Um, but in the passage that was read for us today that we're actually going to dive into, um, God actually takes this idea of generosity and links it to injustice in a way that I, I don't think I had ever seen actually before. Now, just a little bit of context for you. The passage that was read was from a book in the Old Testament called Isaiah. It's actually the, the words. It's the longest prophetic book. It's, Isaiah was a prophet. The, the prophets of God were people before Jesus came where they would be kind of intermediaries. They would be the voice of God um, to the people. And so God, and there were all kinds of false prophets and all that. That's another sermon. We'll get into that. But Isaiah was, was Israel's most prolific prophet and wrote the most about it. And his words are coming to a people in a nation at a time when they were in significant political trouble in terms of their relationship to the nations around them and what was going on in their, in their nation. They were experiencing economic hardship. Okay, sound familiar? Political trouble, economic hardship. And they were saying, hey, God's not hearing and God's not blessing. Like, like, we're doing everything we can. We're meeting for prayer. We are gathering to worship. We are lifting up our hands to God. We're singing. Um, we're, we're fasting. We're going without food. And God's not hearing, and God's not blessing. And God answers their questions through the prophet in maybe one of the most stunning sections of Scripture. And he asks this question, through Isaiah, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? And let me just translate this verse for you for a moment. Fasting was one particular way of their showing their religious observance. It was, they were going without food. And so fasting was one of the many things they were doing. And God says, not particularly about fasting, but saying, hey, this fasting, this worship you're doing, he's actually asking them this question. Do you want to know what true worship is? Do you want to know what it means to love me? Like, that's what this question is. Is this not the kind of fasting under chosen? In other words, you doing all this worship stuff, singing and gathering and praying, lifting your hands to me, observing all of your holy days, Sabbaths, all the feasts, everything, and you're fasting as well. Do you want to know the kind of fasting that I really want? Do you want to know what true worship is and what love means to me? And he answers the question. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and to set the oppressed free? 
God is saying to his people in this moment and actually throughout the whole book of Isaiah, you know, about, let's say, about 2,700 years ago, okay, before we arrived at this issue. He's saying, you can do all this stuff, especially as religious people. You can be singing, and you can be gathering, and you can be praying to me, and you can be fasting, and you can making all the observances in your life about uh, follow this way, we do this this way, and do this that way, and we make sure whatever, we're, the holy place, and all the stuff we're going to do. But I'm telling you, if it is not accompanied with activity and action that is about loosing chains of injustice and setting the oppressed free, I am not interested in your worship. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1 in Isaiah, he says to them about their feasts and their fasting, you know what he says? I hate them. I'm not making up the truth. You can just go read it, Isaiah chapter 1. He says, I hate all your feasts. I hate, they don't mean anything to me. They're empty to me. He was actually coming hard at his people saying, you're doing all this stuff. You're wondering why I'm not answering your prayers? Because there's this massive matter of injustice and oppression that you are not paying any attention to. And because of that, I actually just wish you would stop all the rest of it. And he goes on to explain to them, he says, there's things you're not doing. He says, you're supposed to be breaking every yoke. The yoke, for those, they were in an agrarian uh, culture, and so a yoke was something that would be laid on two oxen, and that the oxen would be joined together, and, and, and it, kind of, it was a burden, but the beasts carried it and pushed and would plow fields. But here he's using the context of a yoke of slavery, that this is a burden that is on people, that you are making them, you are exploiting them. He says, you're supposed to be breaking every yoke, and you're not doing it. You're supposed to be, isn't he says, he says, isn't what I require to provide food for the hungry, to provide shelter for the wanderer, and to clothe those who are naked? And you're not doing that either. He says, this is one of the things you're not doing. You do all this other stuff. You're not doing this. These are the things you aren't doing. Then he says, you know what you are doing? You're exploiting your workers and using others. He said, yeah, you got all this religious observance but as you are employing people, as you are working with them, you are using them up. You are exploiting them, even on some of the holy days and religious feasts, which is why I can't look at you when you're celebrating like this, when you're exploiting people like this. So there's things you're not doing, and these are the things you are. And then he says there's things, instead you're using words to point the face. He emailed me that study this week saying that in Toronto, black Toronto residents are 20 times more likely to be shot by a police officer than white Toronto residents. 20 times. That's in our city, in our nation. And if you've been a part of our church for any period of time, you have heard us talk about the widespread issue of human trafficking and sexual exploitation that exists all the way across our 400 series highways that is occupying almost every hotel in some way, shape, or form that you can see, even the nice, beautiful condos that exist right a stone's throw away from this building that are, that are being used to, uh, to keep people. And this is what's happening in our city, in our town. And yet we, many of us, and myself included, on a day-to-day -day basis are ignoring, downplaying, or denying that this even exists. It's what we are not doing. It's the same thing. It's the same charge that God can bring against us that he brought against his people 2,700 years ago. And likewise, there are things that we are doing. And this is harder to see, right? Because we can look at um, 
people who are visible perpetrators of injustice and say, oh my gosh, I've never even seen anything like that horrific. And God forbid that we ever would. Right? We can say, oh, I would never do that. I would never act like that. And yet the, the systemic nature of injustice is in all of us. And it is in everywhere we are. For those of you that own businesses or those of you that have a charge over teams or people, the question we ask ourselves is, primarily am I thinking about how can I benefit and better the people who God has entrusted to me or am I trying to squeeze every last dollar I can to make sure I make a profit? How am I thinking about the business or the team or the people that God has entrusted to me? Do I think about them as units of productivity or do I think about them as people? Some of us need to be honest about the music that's on our phones. That year after year, we are handing out awards to people whose music systemically and perpetually degrades women. To the point that the names that women are called are now ubiquitous in almost every top 40 song. And can I say this to you young people? You want to be active on social media? You want to be upset at the racism? You should be. But you should also be upset at the kinds of things you are allowing into your home and into your life as we continue to award people who have built their businesses on the theme of objectification and exploitation of women. We have to begin to deal with this. It is systemic. It is everywhere. Some of us that have struggled with pornography need to actually start to admit and realize this isn't just about a purity issue. This is also an injustice issue that every time I'm tempted to go and click, what I'm saying is you exist for my pleasure and I don't mind using you again. It is an issue of injustice and exploitation. And some of us, let's be honest, there is a subtle level of exclusion in us. Some of us have to be honest that if our child came home with a boyfriend or girlfriend of a different race or a certain race, we might be able to keep a good face, but it would trouble us. Or we might think, what are my parents going to think? Or some of us, perhaps, it just looks like we only spend time with a certain ethnic group all the time. We don't actually really know well anybody outside our circle. All of this is a part of systemic issues of injustice, barriers, racism, and it feeds and breeds all of this. There are things we're not doing and there are things we are. And then ultimately what we are saying, isn't it so interesting that God says, this is what is keeping you from pursuing justice? Is you point the finger. I saw this so much in me. You know, when I see these things come up, my immediate reaction is to try to blame somebody whether it's to blame a politician or blame a country that's a mess, can't believe that country, you know, or to blame a people group. I have seen in my own life and I have heard from other people who want to blame the victims themselves and say, well, if they hadn't done this or they hadn't put themselves in this situation or they hadn't done this, well, then that wouldn't have happened to them. Ultimately, all it's doing is saying this is not an injustice issue. This is their issue. This is that problem. This is thing. And many of us over the last few days have spent more time blaming what's going on around than actually willing to admit this is an issue of injustice. I've heard even, I know, as we've gotten into uh, um, advocacy for um, human trafficking, sexual exploitation, I've heard a lot of people say about prostitution, strip clubs, oh, that, that's their fault or that's their choice. This is what we do to get rid of the nagging issues of injustice we blame. And then malicious talk, we fight hate with hate. 
This, is so, this shows you how sinister and how underneath all of this is not actually human power, but an evil that has always existed around us. That even in the face of hate, in want, and righteous anger comes up within us and we respond with hate. We respond with, with malicious talk. We respond with anger and slander. And some of us have slandered others or other institutions or churches or whatever for what they haven't done and what they aren't doing. And so even in this, we can get sucked into responding to hate with hate. Friends, this is the same condition we find ourselves with, I find myself in, that God had as he comes to his people. And yet out of this, he gives them this beautiful invitation to generosity. Look at what he says. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. God's call to us as people who are immersed in, surrounded by a world of injustice, of racial tension, of inequality, of systems, systemic injustice, poverty, is to say, I am inviting you to become generous with yourself, to spend yourself. And we say, well, what, what does that mean? Is he saying money? He's talking about the heart. You as a person. You know what this looks like, I think, right away? Is allowing God's heart to penetrate our hearts. Some of us, I think, keep this at a distance We don't watch it, we don't talk about it, or we politicize it, or we intellectualize it because we are too afraid to actually let it settle in our hearts because of what it'll do to our hearts. If we really allow ourselves to think about it. This is the thing I know I resist so much, the breaking. But this is what God means when he says, if you will will allow yourself to be broken over these things, if you spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, and if you actually begin to align all of life, not just your worship life, around me and my values and the values of my kingdom, this is what you will do. This is the life I'm calling you to live. It's a way of thinking about everything you do in light of those that I have called you to love. How on earth do we do this? Where do we even begin? We just finished a series and we talked about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we began by saying the good news starts with the truth that God has actually become one of us. God spent himself by coming to us in the flesh in Jesus. That God actually made the first move to come into our world, to come into our skin, to come to us, to show us what it means to live in a world like this, in a world of racism and inequalities and poverty and systemic injustice in oppression, in exploitation and slavery. You know, we talk about Jesus and the the cross obviously is a symbol of the life of Jesus and we're going to celebrate communion today, the death of Jesus. But have you ever talked, thought about this, that Jesus deliberately acted to remove the injustices of race, gender, poverty, and abuses of power. And this is one of the reasons they killed him. This is one of the reasons they killed him because Jesus himself was upending all of these carefully constructed systems and the people with power, the people with money, the people that stood to benefit from the systemic injustices got to the point where they said he is literally tearing all of these walls down 
we have to kill him. God obviously was doing something bigger in the death of Jesus, but the scriptures actually say it was the work of evil people, in part because he was doing this. This was the work that Jesus came to do. And yet, this is so beautiful. When we look at his life, we realize Jesus didn't actually start a mass media campaign. He didn't use social media. He didn't have social media, I know. He didn't go to the mass. He didn't go to the seat of political power and say, I need to sit there. He didn't try to mobilize the military. Do you know what he did? One at a time, personally spoke to people. You ever realize how much the biographies of Jesus are full of his one-on-one conversations, individual conversations. The conversations themselves were dignifying people. So often they were with those people that the, the rest of the world had said, you're not even worth a conversation. And yet he would go to them personally. He would hear their cries in the crowds. He would go look them in the eye. He would go have conversations with that other people would say, that's scandalous. You can't talk to her. Do you know what she's like? Do you know what her reputation is like? Jesus would go directly to all those people, one at a time, personally dignifying by even having the conversation with them and systematically addressing these issues, one person at a time, and at the same time forming a radically new kind of community. Jesus, as he's having these individual conversations, is also bringing them together and saying, I want to form a new community. You ever think about the fact that in Jesus' inner circle, his 12, the 12 disciples, there was a zealot, and these were the political activists who would go and actually kill Roman guards because they they thought they were meant to overthrow the establishment, and a tax collector who represented everything that was wrong with the establishment. And Jesus says, you too? Now you're brothers. (laughs) This was the kind of community that Jesus formed, the disciples. And then if you look at the early church, it's full of Pharisees, Roman centurions who were trained killers, fishermen, men and women, people of high status, people of low status, people of every kind of race. And that was the scandal of the early church was the kind of people that started to meet together as one community who said we are a community that is defined by something that has to be stronger than just tolerance. Live and let live is not enough for us. It has to be stronger than diversity. And it has to be stronger than equality. It's love. As John Perkins, the Jesus follower and civil rights activist said, love, love is the final fight. And the community that Jesus formed was meant to show a world that otherwise throws up its hands and says, what on earth are we going to do? How is this ever going to change? And say love is the final fight. What does this mean for you, for me? Can I just encourage you with this? It starts with one thing. Just one thing. A simple prayer, God, show me what you want me to do. And who else should I bring with me? For me, this journey eight years ago, a little over eight years ago, started as I began to have conversations with a pastor friend of mine who was working with human trafficking survivors and victims in York Region. And my first reaction was, there's no way this is happening here. And he began to tell me story after story. And as I began to read and as I began to listen to him, my heart just began to be wrecked. 
I didn't know anybody who was a survivor of human trafficking. I didn't even know this was happening before. I didn't really even understand it. And I was getting wrecked as I'm reading these stories and listening to him. My heart was getting broken. And I started to say, God, what do you want me? I felt paralyzed by it. I said, how could I do? I didn't even know this was a problem. And now this is a national problem. And the scale of this is, is enormous. And the police and the vice squads can't even keep up. And it's so hard to land a conviction. What on earth do you want me to do? But I started praying this. I said, God, show me what you want me to do. And I also prayed, Lord, is this just for me? Or does my church need to be a part of this too? And I didn't know the answer, but I began to pray. Eight years later, I can tell you, I do know some of these young women. I know their names. I know their faces. I've eaten with them. They've been in our home. We spent time with them. I've prayed for them. My heart has grown bigger for it. And, and I'll have to tell you, even this week, even today, I'm like, yeah, but it's not, it's not enough. It still hasn't consumed me enough. The, the injustices haven't wrecked me enough more, Lord. It has to happen more. But this has been a journey over eight years of saying, God, what do you want me to do? And who else is this for? And many of you have come on the journey as well. Some of you were already on the journey ahead of me, and I got to catch up to you. And so I would say to you, just start. Just start with one thing. Say, God, what do you want me to do? We're actually launching this thing today we're calling 30 Days of Generosity. And each week we're putting out a list of ideas of things, just small things that you can do to begin, to start. And so on the website today, you'll find actually when it comes to this whole matter of justice and compassion and mercy, what could I do? If you don't even know where to start, there's a suggestion. There's a suggestion of some books you could start to read to let it break your heart. There's uh, connections to, um, you can get on the prayer letter for men in the trafficking, which is our partner for, uh, you know, working to fight human trafficking. You can get on, the, on our global ministries prayer letter, which will advise you some of our international workers who are involved in this kind of work. There's other suggestions there. The point is this. Jesus always said his kingdom is like a, a little seed that falls to the ground and dies, and it seems like nothing. It seems like something so small against the mountain that we are facing. Or it's like yeast. By the time it's absorbed in the dough, you can't see it at all. And yet he says, over time, these little things change the world. That's how my kingdom works. And so don't be discouraged. Don't be paralyzed. Don't be hopeless in this. I understand all of the feelings. Start with one thing and a simple prayer and see where God takes you. In a few minutes, we're actually going to have communion together, but the team's going to come and play a song for you and I got to tell you that when I finish preaching this message to the pastors that I do the run through every week, I finished preaching and I just began to weep, to weep. Like I just bawled. And at first I was like, I must be really tired. And then in that moment, I felt like God was saying to, you, to me, I'm just giving you a glimpse of my heart just for a moment. You won't even be able to contain it, but you are overcome. This, my heart breaks for these things. Come and join me in it. And so the song the band's going to sing is called Lead Me to the Cross. But in it, there's this bridge. It says, lead me to your heart, to your heart. And so even as they sing that, if you know it or you've never heard it before, 
Say, okay, God, let wanted to remind you, uh, just for those ideas, if you're looking for a place to start, um, where do I even begin as yourself or with a friend or with family as you're praying through that, you can go on the website and find uh, 30 Days of Generosity. And if you want to, if you're on social media, use the hashtag WhatGives2020. We want to share and encourage each other with these things, because I don't know about you, but I need to hear stories of how God is at work through other people's lives. It inspires me to do things as well. And so feel free to do that um, through this time, through this season.